0: Assume that you belong. And that's kind of the there's a fake it to you make it aspect that's required from someone of any age. But I can think back to some of my best relationships and kind of think, well, wow, it was really great that I just walked up to that person and said, hey, and assumed that there would be a way to add value to that conversation. What's great about real estate is everyone in this business is a deal junkie. And so if you open a conversation with a deal, everyone's willing to talk to you and you can kind of start a conversation because people can jump right into the deal and and the the specifics and so that was that was really my approach and the way that i wanted to to get into those conversations
1: i'll never forget that day when i asked myself the question is this it is this all there is to strive for in life that day i set out on a journey to find more now i am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome back, Contrarian Cashflow. Today, I've got Rob Beardsley with me. Rob, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Yeah, man. No, I'm super pumped. This is exciting for my career. Like I mentioned prior to, you know, I work with a lot of software engineers. So uh, with a, talking to a former one, now real estate investor will be pretty exciting. So for those folks that don't know, Rob is the co-founder of Lone Star Capital, to date over $100 million in multifamily assets acquired, an author of the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions and a fellow podcaster, the Capital Spotlight podcast. So, uh, Rob, what else you got going on right now?
0: Well, we're, you know, as always hunting for deals and COVID, as you know, has only made it more challenging. It was wasn't easy before COVID, but it's just a little bit harder. But we're we're getting creative, we're looking at deals. And something that we were just talking about, you know, off off the recording was the, you know, the idea that it's okay to look at deals that aren't just value add. And so while value adds are bread and butter, we love turnaround plays, we love ways we can create value. I think there's a little bit of overlooked value in in some of the off-the-beaten path type value add, or just more even core plus deals and, and also different structures like preferred equity. So I'm sure we'll dive into more of that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So I do want to jump into your journey a little bit, though. So obviously, everybody knows you from your your analysis, your underwriting models, your multifamily side. But, uh, you know, I don't know if was, as many fam- people are familiar with kind of how you started and, and kind of how this came about. And, and, you know, you kind of were going down a different path quite prior to. So I guess let's kind of I guess even maybe back to your childhood, because I know that that had a big impact on you and your life. So I guess, you know, tell us where did Rob Beardsley come from and, you know, how'd you get here?
0: Yeah, so the story starts. Uh, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Obviously, there's a lot of tech influence there. You know, my 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 friends uh, wanted to go into tech. All my rich neighbors to aspire to were in tech, and it was my parents who were in the residential real estate uh, sales business, and they were working really hard. And they they're saying, "Oh, don't be like us, and and do this boring real estate thing. You should go into tech. That's where the big money's at." And so that was kind of how I was orienting myself. Um, you know, went to school to study computer science and that I thought I would, you know, follow that that route as, you know, that's the way to wealth, or at least I thought, and I'm not saying it isn't, but that was just my my initial programming. And what ended up happening is just my intellectual curiosity, my, I always had a desire to invest, you know, always thinking about the stock market and things like that. But I figured that investing whether it be the stock market or real estate or or whatever it is that people invested in i figured to myself that that was what i would do once i made the millions in tech and you know then i'd be the investor but as i was researching more and, and and you know becoming more passionate about it i realized i could actually just shortcut that step and just go straight to the investing you know and not do the millions in tech first and so that was that was the realization that you know I can I can do real estate in such a way that is is different from my my upbringing where I saw my parents struggle and like I say it doesn't matter how much money they made they were always working really hard and they were always stressed out so you know I, I realized I could I could actually find a way to work in real estate to not only earn an income but also build wealth and accumulate assets which is the the end goal for many and and is kind of the aspirational uh, goal when you think about investing. So that's kind of how I went full circle from, you know, growing up in a real estate family, being surrounded by tech. And then luckily I didn't go too far down. I know there's people who maybe wake up, you know, 20 years into their career and whatever it is and go, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm living life as an E, but I'm not an, an I right, which is an employee versus an investor. So I'm really fortunate to have had all of that realization happen in college. And, that the reason why that came about is because I mean I'm really fortunate to have grown up with access to everything. You know, the internet makes everything so accessible. I could read any book, I can learn anything, and I really just soaked it all up and made the most of it.
1: Yeah, know. and I think that story is so interesting because I think from my perspective, obviously substantially different upbringings or you know backgrounds. You know, my 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 dad was in corporate; he was a corporate CFO for quite some time. But same kind of idea; he had to travel a lot very stressed out working, you know, crazy hours on Saturdays and things like that. And so I think seeing that had a profound impact on me as well. So what, so when you're making this transition and kind of, you know, leaning from the software engineer to more the investor, what's the conversation like with the parents? I mean, are they, are they supportive or are they scared or, you know, what's kind of the conversation with them?
0: I think, I'm trying to remember back. I mean, my parents have always been very supportive. So I'm really lucky. If it, it doesn't, it didn't matter what my interests were, they would find a way to support me. And that's always been the case. And so I think it could have been a lot worse or a lot more of a jolt, a jolting experience. Um, but I think basically they they took it as, all right, you can take this risk essentially. And, you know, you have a you have a safety net, you have a fallback plan essentially. So if it doesn't work out, then you can always go back and figure it out. And so, I, you know, I I don't think I ever thought about the possibility of failure. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't just take a risk thinking that oh I'm fine because I can fail. I never really thought about. I thought you know I never want to fail. And so I always I thought to myself okay this is where I'm going and I'm going to be successful. And so I I didn't really think about a plan B. And I I think that's obviously a good mentality to to have, but having a legitimate plan B is helpful. So. Yeah, I think all in all supportive, but a little bit of a kind of a shock at first.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I kind of started a little bit, I tried to do the entrepreneurial stuff at first and my dad, you know, the parents were kind of like, well, hey, you know, you need more of something, you know, corporate and kind of static and at least, you know, nine to five and the hours and stuff. And now I've kind of had that awakening that you had early on, you know, kind of mid-career and it's like, okay, now it's time to start looking at things. Like you said, to get more into the B and I quadrants, right? Obviously everyone would love to be in the I quadrant, right? That's, that, that's you know, that's the coup de gras, but, you know, unfortunately some of us have to take a couple more steps to get there. So as far as um, the real estate side, you know, why not just go into the the brokerage side like your parents did, right? I mean, that seems like, okay, so, you know, maybe the software engineering isn't quite for me and I'd like to be on the investment side, but, you know, you're selling a million or a million half, $2 million houses in Silicon Valley. I mean, I'm sure those commission checks are pretty nice. So why not just go into the residential side? What got you into the commercial and, and mo- more specifically multifamily side of real estate?
0: I was probably, I mean, a little bit, scarred is a harsh word, but a little bit, you know, scarred from my my childhood and seeing my parents on the brokerage side. And, you know, nothing wrong with the brokerage side of the business, but it is a very service business, transactional business. And that's not, you know, that's not what I wanted. And so it was kind of going back to this idea of shortcutting. And so, you know, a lot of people maybe get into brokerage thinking I'll eventually want to get onto the principal side and I want to own my own deals. And I think the only difference between the two is mindset. I think it's just you yourself are holding yourself back. That's not to say that you don't gain a tremendous amount of experience from brokerage, right? That's a, a wonderful way to learn. But but guess what? You could, act, you could also learn by just actually doing it on the principal side, if you are fortunate enough to have the opportunity. So I just, you know, f- whatever For whatever reason, I was fortunate enough to not have those limiting beliefs and and take the mindset approach that I could just start this and 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 dive in and start meeting everybody and building relationships which are obviously so critical to this business. so i th- I think that's the answer. It's just essentially it's a shortcut.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about getting to that I quadrant, right that's that's what you need to do, the fast, you know the faster you can compress the amount of capital, because at the end of the day, you know, we can call it whatever we want, but it's really comes down to capital, right? How much capital do you have that you're able to deploy the, the way you're able to compress that and, and and multiply that capital faster will get you to that I quadrant faster. And then you can kind of start playing quarterback and, you know, you're kind of over, you're kind of an asset manager over your entire, you know, your wealth or your fortune or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So, all right. So, is it just, are you just this college kid that's got this you know great computer science degree and now all of a sudden you're buying multifamily properties or, or or how did you get from A to Z to Lone Star now?
0: So, yeah, I mean, fast forward a little bit, I was, again, really fortunate to meet my business partner, Ken Petrakowski. We we met at a real estate conference and we were connected through a mastermind and it just, we were just, you know, it's gone a lot better than we probably ever both thought and we've never had an argument and we, we compliment each other very well yeah he's 40 years old i'm 24 and there's just so much mutual respect and like i said he he prefers to be in the shadows i am i'm still an introvert also but i recognize the need for one of us to 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 step up and and be the face so so it's not like cuz i know there's some other founder pairs uh that i speak with and they kind of jostle for the limelight and that actually creates a lot of Issues and holds them back, and just mental drain. And so I'm so thankful that we don't have any of that issue. Um, And you know, so there's other ways that we complement each other. But anyway, really fortunate to be able to have started Lone Star with him now, uh, just over three years ago. And through that experience, I was I was bringing more of like you said, the analytical, the just the hard work of just underwriting deals, looking at a bunch of things, refining our our processes and whatnot. And then he was more up and running already in the multifamily business in terms of relationships, investors, you know, investment thesis and things like that. So so that was a the next big step to help me kind of fast forward to now where we're managing, you know, a hundred million dollar portfolio and and looking to to grow substantially more in 2021.
1: Yeah, no, that's outstanding. So how does a uh, so I mean you said, you know, 40, 24. I mean, there's a pretty fair delta there in age group. So how do you, yeah, how did you how did it come about? Being, you know, kind of this young buck, and then you know somebody that's a little bit more, you know, senior in their career. How how did you guys kind of coalesce to the point that you said, "Hey, let's let's really start this venture and see where we can take things."
0: I think we did it in a really appropriate way. I think I think it would have been risky or inappropriate for us to have just jumped into business. Right? That would be. I mean, for me, it's like, okay, fine. What do I have to lose? But you know, him with a family and a career, like he, he can't do that. So. Uh, I think the way we did it was, was just, you know, slowly, but surely. I mean, we didn't, I mean, when we did our first deal, I would say without even kind of really formally forming our partnership. So we were still kind of taking things slow, like, Hey, let's just look at some deals together. And I think what's great about the real estate business is it's very deal driven. And it's also very conducive to partnerships and partnerships don't have to be marriages in real estate. We can do one-off deals and we can kind of date, we can do a deal together did you like the experience? Then maybe we can do another. And I think that is, uh, you know, that's wonderful. I've, I've so far we've been, you know, had the had the pleasure to partner with various, um, you know, high net worth investors, also family offices, private equity firms, other sponsors, and so we've got to experience how see how other people do things and and learn from others. And so, uh, you know, going back to that that idea, we were able to kind of see how we work together by just going one deal at a time. And uh, I think that was what gave us the confidence to say, you know what, this is working out. Let's, you know, let's actually take the dive.
1: No, that's awesome. I love that that analogy of, you know, you don't have to get married right away, right? Hey, let's feel this out. And, and like you said, real estate is great or just, you know, business in general, obviously real estate's, you know, sometimes easier to get out of than than, than other businesses, uh, you know, if the partnership needs to to dissolve. But I think your point is is extremely valid. And I hope the audience kind of takes, takes that in because I think they should understand that, you know, some of these partnerships you don't, it's exciting, right? And everyone's like, oh, my partner, my business partner, you know, hey, we've got this group and it's exciting, but make sure that you guys, it's a lot different talking and, you know, high level than it is actually being in a deal. Right. And when stuff starts to hit the fan and you're like, Hey, this isn't going, this is going a little bit more sideways than we'd expected. And it's nice that you're not, like you said, it wasn't like so deep at that point that you guys couldn't get out if for whatever reason, it didn't work. But obviously, you know, fortunately it sounds like it's, it's going outstanding. So for folks out there that are trying to form partnerships, and especially again, with such a diverse background as you know, yourself and your partner, what recommendations do you have for folks that are looking to try to form partnerships out there, you know, primarily through real estate, but just, just you know, may, maybe any business partnership?
0: So I think it, it takes massive action. And so, it, you know, our partnership's somewhat of a bad example because it was very serendipitous how we met just at a conference and it just worked. I, I would say generally don't do that. But what I would say is don't go. I, I'm not, what I'm not saying is to not go to conferences. I would say what I typically say about networking is network really fast, meet a lot of people, get exposure, but then move very slowly. So, you know, do due diligence and kind of, kind of what we were saying before about dating and moving slow, uh, rather than just jumping in. So I, I would say it's, it's the combination of, you know, move fast and and network a lot, but then Take it slow and actually making a, a certain decision, and that's true for really any partnership decision, whether it's uh, a lender, an equity partner, a property management company, or a business partner.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, I, I love that. So, so the name Lone Star Capital. I know you guys are, are heavily vested in in Texas. So, you know why why is that the the business plan? And I know you guys expanded a little bit since then, but but why Texas and and why Lone Star Capital?
0: So. You know, we started working. You know, Kent and I. We started working together, and even before working, uh, you know, before working together, we were already individually looking at uh, Texas multifamily. So it was already on our respective radars, and so that was kind of the nice mesh uh, of us to work together. Was hey, you're already looking at these deals. I'm already looking at these deals. This makes sense, and so you know, from there, it just you know, neither of us were creative enough or had a name that we were married to, so. So, you know, Kent said, well, let's just be Lone Star and let's, you know, really make that our focus. And hopefully that'll get us noticed a little bit more when we're, you know, outsiders looking in on the, on those markets. So, and the reason why to begin with, we're interested in Texas is, is a few things. And these are, none of these are secrets. Everybody knows about these wonderful drivers driving the Texas market, but nevertheless, it's, you know, obviously population growth, job growth, and something that, that we really like and that fits our business model is that there is a ton of large garden-style suburban multifamily built in the 70s and 80s. There's just a ton of it. There's other markets that we really like, but there's, there's a lack of that product. And so what's great about you know Houston, as just an example, has over 600,000 multifamily units. And that's a lot of units to look at. Another great benefit about Texas is Texas is more of a trading state. People buy and sell frequently in Texas. You have other markets like old money, East Coast markets, or even in the Midwest where not a lot of trading happens. People own deals for 20 years. And so there's just no inventory. You, you can look at deals, but there's nothing for sale. Texas is not like that. There's a lot of them. And then a lot of them are trading hands often. So that's an opportunity for you to, to get in and, and get out at the right time, hopefully, if you can you know, find the right deal.
1: No I love that and just in general right any anyone in the audience that's looking at any type of investment right I think I mean you know that was that those are some great examples right there as far as the demographic drivers but then also the supply and demand dynamic right you know so if you're in a market that 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 there's not a lot of transactions going on consistently you know, you can keep looking there and not saying you won't find the needle in a haystack. But as far as if you're trying to make this a career, if you're trying to make this iterative in in regards to the transaction volume, you know that's a really great point uh, as far as those drivers. So, <laughs> so obviously, like you said, you had you're you know you're a software engineer, you know by 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 uh, education, um, and you're kind of a little bit more on the introverted side. And but now. Within the real estate game, and everybody's kind of in this social media world of personal branding and getting out there. I mean, you're an author now. I mean, so you wrote a book. You've got a podcast, and you know now you're. I mean, at least in the videos, I know you've, you're posting all the time. and You definitely don't seem as introverted anymore. So how did how did you go about you know this young kid talking about multi million dollar apartments? I mean, how you know real estate's primarily an old person. You know, or usually an old person or old money game in general, right? Especially when you talk about the commercial side, you've got to have a substantial. Bankroll to make these deals happen. So, how did you get in those rooms, start rubbing elbows, and then also be able to start building credibility at such a young age with other investors that you know have been doing this sometimes fifty or sixty years?
0: Right. So, it there's a lot to unpack there. But in terms of getting into the right rooms, I, you know, it's actually, it's not that hard, right, to get into the rooms. You just have to know who to reach out to, know which events to go to, and not be afraid to ask for the meeting. Not be afraid to you know show up and be there and then and then make those introductions and assume that you belong. And that's kind of the, there's a fake it till you make it aspect that's required from someone of any age. But I, I can think back to some of my best relationships and kind of think, well, wow, it was really great that I just walked up to that person and said, hey, and assumed that there would be a way to add value to that conversation. And that's my issue, or I don't know, basically that's my advice that a lot of people approach it from the perspective of, I have no value to add to this person. So I'm simply just going to approach them and, and ask about their story, or I'm going to pick their brain, or I'm just going to try to take as much value, recognizing the fact that I can't give. And so even if you don't know how you can give value, uh, you know you got to find a way. And so that, that that was always my approach. I always wanted to... I never wanted to, to enter a conversation or start a relationship and empty-handed. So... It, you know, it, it's, uh, and what's great about real estate is for the most part, everyone in this business is a deal junkie. And so if you open a conversation with a deal, everyone's willing to talk to you and you can kind of start a conversation because people can jump right into the deal and and the, the specifics. And so that was, that was really my approach and the way that I wanted to, to get into those conversations. Um, and then, sorry, you asked about, uh, so just being introverted and now you're having to be in, yeah, the, in social the spotlight,
1: media. well, I guess the capital spotlight, but in the spotlight a little bit and actually being out there and kind of having your voice heard and your face on videos and, and different things all the time. How how do you go from introverted to being com- to getting yourself comfortable to putting yourself out there so much on social media and in conferences and different areas?
0: Right. And it's a great topic and I, and what I wanted to say was the, the the issue is w- growing up and this is my personal experience maybe other people had different experiences but when i grew up the words sales and the words and the word marketing were bad words and i thought those were you know those professions were people who were you know sleazy or lacked real skill right and and that's just kind of th- those ideas that i grew up with and because of that i never learned marketing or i had actually a active aversion to it and thought people that did marketing were somehow less than, and oh, I'm going to be the successful guy that doesn't market. That's those are the thoughts in my head. So fortunately, I, you know, got more and more involved in business in general and started to realize that these are the things that you have to do, and that's true today, and it's true probably f- forever, from you know from the beginning of history. So uh, once I stopped resisting and 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 changed my mentality towards it, I got a whole lot more comfortable with putting myself out there and it's really just it's like okay well how bad do you want this you want to be a, you know run a successful business you want to start up this and and do it then these this is what it takes and i know i sure sure no kent wasn't going to do it cuz you know he's really introverted so i i just told myself that this has to be me and this is i have to do this and so it's a whole lot easier to turn the camera on and start recording or write an article or do a podcast if you literally know that your business depends on it.
1: That's a great perspective. Honestly, I haven't really kind of thought of it that way, you know, because I mean, a lot of it has to do with ego, right? A lot of folks are going out there to be like, hey, I'm the best, especially in real estate, you know, just anything investing related, right? Everybody wants to be the biggest, the baddest, you know, the most units, the most assets under management, whatever the case is. So I think a lot of it comes back to ego for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people try to oversell their accomplishments because, you know, the fake. Not that I'm against the fake it till you make it, but sometimes it's getting a little bit overdone with how much people are faking. Especially, I mean, yeah, on the co-sponsor side, you know, people are like, "Hey, look, we just, right?" You know, I mean, people are just even today is funny. I was somebody texted me, they're like, "Whose deal is this?" You know, and there was like five or six people celebrating that they had closed this property. But the point you made about your business depending on it because I'm you know i'm a little bit more extroverted i'm a sales guy so i'm a little bit more i'm the sleazy sales guy right so i'm a little bit more extroverted but at the same time it was still uncomfortable at first just even doing this podcast and i think that was one of the reasons why i was like i probably should do this because it is just like an out of body experience and you know talking to people being on camera and just getting comfortable with that was just such a unique experience but the way you phrased it as far as like hey my business depends on this is so true right i mean just nowadays if you're somebody was making the point about the other day um about, you know, how many people really know your message, right? You think you're shouting it from the rooftops every day or constantly. And then all of a sudden a buddy comes up from, you know, whatever back in the day, they're like, I didn't know you did that. And you're just (laughs) like, wait, I thought I was saying this all the time. So it's interesting, you know, how we interpret how we're broadcasting our message, but even more interesting how, you know, maybe the audience or who we think is the audience is actually receiving it.
0: Yeah. Couldn't agree more. That's really interesting point as well. And yeah, I mean, you, you pretty much have to say your message way more than, you know, you have to in your own head, hear your message a million times for then potentially some, some people to hear it. So that that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as far as um, the, the book, so what, I mean, you know, what kind of drove, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I think everybody in the back of their mind is always kind of like, yeah, I think I should write a book. Um, But so what kind of drove it and and what was that process like becoming an author?
0: Yeah. So, when i first started in the business and introduced got introduced to underwriting deal analysis and, and wanted to learn about it i you know did my research and saw that there wasn't you know one centralized place to to learn it i mean there were different maybe courses or boot camps and and things like that that i'm sure they're great but for for me i just was was very surprised that first of all there wasn't a book i just thought there was a book on everything so uh, when I, you know, set out to learn it, I thought, okay, well, I'll circle back to this eventually, and I'll, you know, write a book on it, and because it's a, it's a gap in the market and a surprising gap in the market, in my opinion. So that was really the impetus for writing the book, and it was actually a really easy book to write. I'm starting my second book, and I'm just procrastinating so hard, and uh, it's not quite as easy to write. But the first book was so easy to write because it was just such a straightforward how-to guide. And all I had to do was look at my spreadsheet as to how we analyze deals and then go line by line and, and go through every item and say, and kind of think to myself, okay, what are my thoughts behind every, you know, this line item? And then I just pour out my thoughts. And so it was like my table of contents was already written for me because it was in the form of my spreadsheet. And unfortunately, my next book doesn't have just a table of contents written out for me, <laughs> but but that will no- nonetheless be coming soon. But yeah, that was the the... The idea for the book and the process for writing, like I said, was was fairly smooth. And then, you know, these days, Amazon makes it super easy to be self-published and, you know, take the manuscript, put it into your Kindle format, put it into your paperback format and, uh, you know, it was off to the races.
1: What was the time frame? kind of when you had, you know, when you started the process and then actually got it onto, you know, onto Amazon or had it available for distribution? What, how long did that take?
0: So I started the book in January, 2020. And then I finished the book. I want to say sometime in March, probably the middle of March, twenty twenty. And then uh, it spent about a month giving it to various people to edit, and then incorporating their comments, and then doing my own final edit, and then and then taking that final draft and actually putting it into book form. And then we were we went live with the book um, sometime late May. So it was uh, it was pretty quick, or at least it felt pretty quick to me, and. And it was really exciting to launch the book. And I, I didn't know what what to expect fully, but I had, you know ambitions, and oh, I'm going to sell X amount of copies, and I'm really excited. And I went and did somewhat of a podcast tour to you know share the message and and let people know that the book was coming out on podcasts, which I think helped a lot. and And podcasts in general have just been such a great way to to get our message out. So, so yeah, that was really the process from start to finish.
1: And what is it done? Because I think that because I think that's like sometimes people want to write a book, but it's like, well, what's going to be the end result and the value of this? So what? So I mean, that, like you said, that was a pretty compressed time frame, in my opinion, of you know, kind of getting it started and then actually getting it out the door into into the audience and the readers' hands. So since you've had it published, you know, what value is that brought to your business?
0: Yeah, I think you made such a good point that if, with anything that you do, you have to have a really clear why, or else you're going to lose motivation. Or you know, j- procrastinate on it. And so, you know, I'm thinking back, I can't really remember if I had such a strong why. I mean, I knew it'd be a good book to get out there. But, um, you know, I, I, certainly the book has been incredible uh, in, in terms of what it has done in terms of growing our network, and it's brought so many more people um, to us and, and want to learn more about us and, and things like that. And, and obviously, it helps establish more credibility. Uh, so, so it, it, it's very difficult to quantify. The tangible benefits of it but those are you know just generally speaking those they're there i mean they're absolutely there it's the it's the credibility it's the in growing your network i mean the book has you know probably when this show goes live will sell over 2000 copies which to me is just incredible and i'm i'm super happy about that and so that's 2000 people who have hopefully they read it hopefully they spent the time and that's like an intimate time that they got to know me better they got to know our process better and hopefully they learned a ton. And it, depending on who it, you know who they are, they might be a sponsor, they might be a past investor. Now, I, I can't think of a better way to 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 build that relationship and that trust with an investor, for example, than to have them sit and read that book. So, so that, that that's definitely what's what's gone on.
1: I think that's really powerful. And to your point, I think that's part of the reason that my podcasts are so popular now is they always say, you know, it's how intimate of a, you're pretty much, you know, having a conversation with the listener and kind of like, you know, same, similar with writing the book, right? They're kind of reading, you know, hey, this is how I'm writing, you know, how to underwrite different deals. And this is how I'm viewing things. And I just, I think that's such a tremendous way, like you said, not only to get your message out there, which is one thing, but also the impact of the message on, you know, on the, on the, you know, audience or whoever they are, right? You know, and it's a lot more intimate if they're actually reading your words and kind of understanding your thought process and 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 how you see things. So um, let's get into the the actual investing a little bit, right? So a little bit more on the technical side. So what's just kind of your overall thoughts on the market right now? And like you talked, we talked about before, you know, just the value, the value add, obviously that's been a big, a big proponent, uh, a component of everybody, you know, kind of their strategy over the last few years. And from 2015 to 2019, it was obviously extremely successful. Uh, regardless of, I guess, how much value you added, you you came out like a bandit. So, so what's kind of your thoughts just overall in the market right now, and and what we're getting to with valuations kind of across the board of assets being, you know, aggressive.
0: Yeah. So I think uh, there's a lot to talk about as it relates to COVID because that that just creates a whole new complication. So you know, rather than trying to dive into that too much. It's just kind of more broadly into your value add point i want to make the the comment that you know even pre covid value add was very hot and and it is still hot post covid and we were you know we're as you know we're very much in the value add business we want to find deals that are undervalued and that have opportunities to to increase noi increase value through renovations improved management deferred maintenance capital structure and so nevertheless though even pre covid we were on the more skeptical side of value add, of purported value add that came, in the way of just more renovations on top of renovations. You know, there was lots of deals that had, you know, they're basically a Frankenstein deal because they were they were bought by an owner, renovated partially, and then now there's just more renovations on top of those. And you know, how far are you just going to push those rents? And you know, not to say that it can't be done. We absolutely have bought properties and have increased the rents uh, substantially and, and justifiably so because we were both buying the deal with severely below market rents and just adding a ton of value to the units. So not saying it's not viable, but it's just, we don't really love the idea of buying something that's operating at market rate and then just taking it up a notch and trying to stretch and push what the market is willing to do. We much prefer to find opportunities where here's the market and we can buy Below the market, and all we're doing is pushing up to the market. It's such a def- more defensible strategy, and so that's what we really like. It's what we pr- prefer, and that typically pushes us more into the C plus B minus space, which is not everyone's favorite. And it's you know certainly we'd love to just be managing B plus deals that are in pretty neighborhoods, and you know the rent the rent is paid on time. But you know the reality is that C plus B minus is where really more of that opportunity is. And so something that we were seeing is you know even like a late '90s, early 2000s deal was getting slapped with that value add sticker on it, and saying, "Oh, you can even value add this 2005 deal." And so, so I, that's that's what we shied away from. You know, we were really more so looking at value add from the perspective of finding deficiencies to the market, rather than pushing the boundaries of of the market, or or, or you know, trying to make a new market.
1: I think that's tremendous. And to your point, you know, just getting to market, and if that's kind of the delta that you're trying to cross. Anything above that's a benefit, right? So if you're saying, hey, that that standard deviation or that difference between where you're buying at and where you think you can get into in the market, then if you know, kind of if we have, you know, appreciation like we've had over the last couple of years continues to happen. That's just icing on the cake. And now all of a sudden the deal's a home run instead of, hey, you know, this is a solid double, you know, it's a good deal, we're gonna get our whatever 12 to 15 IRR. Now all of a sudden, you know, maybe you bump up to, you know, 20 or maybe a little bit above there. You know, if we get, you know, the I mean, I don't really see interest rates compressing more, but you know, if cap rates continue to compress a little bit. And I just, you know, the interesting thing for me is, and it's been explained, someone explained this to me. So obviously I'm not smart enough to think of it myself, but around that, you know, the the um the amount of errors that you can make within a deal. Are just are just shrinking, right? You know, as these deals become more and more valued, your business plan has to go off like a you know like a rocket, and it has to hit perfectly. And like you said, COVID itself is even just such a dynamic that's you know in and of itself, let alone supply constraints or labor constraints or whatever the case is. Or you know, if you I don't know if you're in Texas and you got broken pipes all over the place, right? You know, how is this going to start impacting? these strategies. And if you had to be like, Oh my gosh, we only have a 5%, you know, error to, you know, up or down, at least as far as cost or whatever the case is, you know, or timeframe, I I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting over the next couple of years, how these deals play out. And, you know, if the, if the business plans that people are implementing are actually realized or, you know, whatever, whatever happens, obviously, no, not wishing ill will on anyone, but at the same time, you know, wanting to look at it, Hey, realistically, Hey, that one might not be, that one might be a little bit more aggressive than, than one over here. So, so one thing that I think is a little contrarian that I know you guys have started going down the path of a little bit. So obviously when you talk about traditional real estate investments, equity investments, usually it's just, you know, the equity investment and then the senior debt, right, but there's there's something that can go in between depending on you know the scenario that's preferred equity. So I know you're the expert, so I don't steal your thunder and kind of dig into it. But from a risk adjusted perspective, like you said, you know the spreads between core plus deals and value add deals is shrinking so much that why not just buy a stabilized asset with at least kind of you know an understanding of what your return profile will be versus a value add deal where there's a little bit more you know sensitivity in where the deal could end out. And so, in the capital stack, there's preferred equity. So I guess can you just dig in a little bit and give the audience an idea of what preferred equity is and why you guys feel it's a pretty strong play right now with with where the market is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So and to to just further touch on your point about risk adjusted, it's you know people can pretty easily understand the idea that if I can buy a core plus deal, which is defined as you know a modest value, add, let's just say a light value add, where we're just pushing around slightly and that's it. If I can do that and get a 13% return, let's say. Meanwhile, I might have to do a value add and actually try to raise rents 20% and handle a bunch of deferred maintenance and still only get the 13%. I think everyone can understand easily that, yeah, yeah I'll take the core plus deal. Like Value add as a term, as a business model is sexy. But at the end of the day, if I can get a 13% with less risk and hassle, I'll do that. So that's the risk-adjusted you know, conversation. And a really to to then take it a step further and really show the power of risk adjusted return would be through preferred equity which is now the reduction in risk isn't coming necessarily by way of business plan by the business plan changing it's coming from the capital structure and so as you said preferred equity lives in the middle of the cap stack between debt and equity and so it it, it blurs the lines between both and so most commonly preferred equity is uh it sits directly subordinate to the senior loan so it is subordinate to the loan like normal common equity but what it is is it's first in line in the equity and subordinates all the rest of the common equity so it, it just like a lender has equity cushion a preferred equity lender or investor would have has equity cushion as well and but but unlike equity preferred equity doesn't have an unbounded return potential it's usually a fixed rate of return and and that's all you get so if you're looking at the market and you're of the mind that yeah yeah i get that equity has unbounded return but the reality is that it's not likely to go run off into that unbounded you know universe it's more likely to be somewhere here then you might want to you know trim down your risk and actually reduce your variation of outcome meaning you're willing to give up some upside but also you're protecting your downside and that would be the preferred equity strategy and so it's it's something that you know i think it's it's one of the better places to be today because preferred equity Net to investor today, you can get preferred equity somewhere around anywhere from 10 to 12 percent. And that's net to investor after fees and everything. And so, you know, that's typically, that's generally less than what people are projecting to give to their investors on a value add deal, right? Value add deals typically investors, sponsors are projecting somewhere between like 13 and 17 percent. So it's less, but you have to ask yourself the question is that, first of all, is that value add? Potential, you know, how realistic is it? And if you stress it, where do you end up? Because if you stress preferred equity, it's very unlikely for that return to change. I mean, if you think about preferred equity being at like 85% of the capital structure, you know, a lot has to go wrong for you to eat into that 15% equity cushion for the preferred equity to now see some uh, capital impairment. So that is, you know, when you start stress testing the, 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 the value add, it's like, okay, you see what happens. You start stress testing the pref. Not so much. So you have to look like, is that projected 13 superior to that, you know, also projected 10, 11, 12 on the pref? But you know, it takes a little more thinking. So I think from our perspective, I'll just end on this that, you know, we are very passionate about pref. Pref is really interesting. Um, it's very difficult to like like I'm spending so much time explaining, it's very difficult to explain to investors. And to get them excited about the lower absolute return, if that makes sense. Like in my opinion, the risk-adjusted return is better, but the absolute percentage is lower. So it's an educational process. We've closed a few deals. We'd love to do more, but it's it's it is a lot of work still. And you know, uh, at the end of the day, our main business acquisition. So that's the kind of the trade-offs. Like I think it's a great strategy, but it's a little bit more complicated and harder to explain to investors.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because <clears throat> I've seen a lot of deals come across my desk lately that are kind of that 13 to 14 IRR, but you look at the sensitivity, you know, and they're like, oh, well, it's a 14 if we, you know, if the terminal cap rate is is flat based off the purchase cap rate. And so whatever you want to say about the assumption, you know, but it's just like, but then you go to like, okay, well, if it's 25 basis points per year lower than the purchase cap, you know, now all of a sudden you're like at a 9% IRR. So that's, to your point about risk adjusted, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think it plays a little bit more like debt. I know people don't love debt. You know, people want the equity, they want the upside. But I think when we're in times like this, where they're, we're kind of stressing the market and you can kind of hedge, like you said, risk adjusted against the, the downside risk. Not that it's not there, but obviously you've, you're a little bit more protected what are some good questions that LPs can ask? Because I know not all preferred equity deals or investment opportunities are the same to investors. So do you have just a couple questions, you know, if if, if uh, investors are, are vetting a preferred equity deal that they can ask to make sure that they're looking at it, not like for like with a value add deal, but at least close enough?
0: Absolutely. So with PREF, you know, you still have to underwrite the deal and and the evaluation is just a little bit different than from a traditional equity equity play. So the things to focus on, on the PREF side is, I would say, one of the most important factors is uh, what is called last dollar basis. And so when, when you go in on the deal, you have a going in capital structure where it's like let's say the lender is going 75% leverage, LTV, and then the PREF will go up to 85%. So they'll pick up where the senior leaves off at 75%. So 75% is their attachment point. And then their last dollar basis is 85%. And then from 85 to 100, that's where the equity sits. So that's your capital stack. And so the really important question to ask as a preferred equity investor is, okay, what's my going in uh, basis, right? Okay, so it's it's understood it's 85%. That I know for a fact. And where the underwriting kind of projections come into play is you wanna look at when the deal is stabilized in year two or you know year three, You don't want to still be at 85. Ideally, what happened is, you know, the sponsor actually increased the value of the property. And so because the V in LTV got bigger, when you started at 85, you end up at, let's say, 75. Now, now that's a great place to be, right? So so that's something really important to know is where where am I going in and then where am I projected to stabilize out? Ideally, you can be somewhere around 75 because that'll allow you to then be refinanced out through a loan. So obviously the sponsor could sell the deal to pay your preferred equity position off, but even better if they have the flexibility to actually just get a refi or a supplemental loan to pay you off. So, so they're not forced to sell. So, so last dollar basis is something to, to really be focused on because there's no point in pref. If not, if, if your last dollar basis is 95%, right, then it's okay. My equity cushion is 5%. I might as well be the common equity. So, so that's that's something to focus on. Uh, I would say most importantly, number one uh, number two, I don't really know if there is a number two, but it's i mean number two would be just kind of all the things just to make sure that it's soundly underwritten just like a common equity deal like you mentioned, a big one is exit cap rate, you know rent growth, and just those those sorts of things. same thing applies to pref uh, and that's how we come up with our stabilized valuation on the pref side so and then, lastly, it's just looking at the 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 current pay or or the current pay plus accrual. So you know pref pref ranges from I'd say on the lowest end twelve percent on the highest end, you know sixteen percent for value add. And so you know you just have to look and say, okay, well, does the deal make sense based on the risk and everything? Am I if am I happy with what I'm getting? It's in between twelve and sixteen, and obviously if it's sixteen, you're likely happy. But maybe the risk is is you know, too high or something. So, so it's a little bit of a different calculus on the prep side, but, um, but those are the things to look at.
1: No, those are great. And one, one question or a point of clarification. So I've kind of heard different pref equity structures. So is the investor always guaranteed the depreciation or the flow down depreciation in a, in a pref equity investment?
0: Yeah, that's what I forgot. That's what I wanted to say. Cause if I'm an investor in pref, that's actually probably my first question is, do I get depreciation? So the answer to that is, I don't know. They, I don't know enough PREF investors that, that offer this to say what is standard. We we flow the depreciation to investors, similarly, just as a, as a syndication would. So it's really the same exact tax benefits that you're used to on a common equity side. And the reason why I say I don't know is because PREF is historically, it's typically more so of a institutional preferred equity product. And the those funds typically don't need the tax benefits or don't ask for them, and so 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 those are great from a borrowing perspective. If we're going to go out and borrow preferred equity as a sponsor buying a deal, then I'd absolutely make sure that I'm buying I'm borrowing from an entity that's not seeking prorated tax uh, tax benefits. So, but for us as the preferred equity investor, we want those, we demand those, we put those in our pref term sheets when someone wants to borrow or work with us. So. So, uh, yeah, as an investor in, you know, one of our pref deals or anyone else's pref deals, you absolutely would want to know, well, does it, does it come to me?
1: Yeah. So just, well, the two biggest things that I take away from that is just never make assumptions, right. You know, make sure to clarify when you're, when you're talking about those deals, you know, Hey, is, is depreciation flow down? Cause I've kind of, in looking at different deals, I've heard both, right. You know, and I like the fact that you guys do flow down, but I've seen some that do kind of keep it almost more like a debt instrument, you know, where, Hey, this is kind of your mm-hmm. fixed rate of return, kind of like, a hard money loan or something like that, you know, to folks out there that have done that a private loan that have done that before, but also even though preferred equity, you know, potentially you're safer in the stack, make sure that you're still underwriting and looking at the deal and the fundamentals the same way you would as you know any type of investment or syndication or value add deal you know does the business plan make sense even though you're 80 or 85 percent lTV don't just be like oh well, hey you know'm I'm, I'm protected by quite a bit of equity there you still want to make sure that you're you're going with a reputable sponsor and you know the business plan makes makes fundamental sense so uh, all right, well let's wrap up with the the contrarian three pack. So, I know you're primarily a real estate guy, but um what would you say is is the most contrarian investment maybe you've made in in your investing career?
0: Yeah, like like you said, obviously a real estate investor, but what I'll say just most recently when uh, when the stock market went down 30% uh back in March of 2020. Uh, I mean, I didn't go big or anything, but you know, I kind of did it as a test and I I, I told myself, uh, you know, the market will rebound. And let's just see if I have the emotional resolve to to buy into this, not even a dip, but this really big decline. And if I can hang in there and, and let it ride up. And so I, you know, I bought airlines, which is, uh, you know, I could have done better elsewhere. But you know, I kind of figured, let me go to the source of the pain. And so, so, I, you know, that was a, a contrarian bet for sure. Um, so I would say, you know in my eyes that was contrarian maybe some people would look at some of the real estate investments we've done as super contrarian but the way i look at it is oh this is this is a home run no brainer right but some people might look at us buying properties that are half vacant with you know mold and roofs falling apart they might look at us as contrarian but i look at that and say that's that's an opportunity
1: no absolutely <laughs> that's a great point and and i mean i but i think the the point that you made was with these investments, instead of going all in and just kind of being like, hey, you know, this is going to be shoot the moon, you know, this is going to be the next GameStop, I guess, (laughs) is, um, you know, make sure that you can handle it emotionally too, right? I think that's the big thing, just no different than a career or, you know, anything in life. But riding the dips, I think that's because I think about Bitcoin and, you know, it was like I bought in kind of a little bit, right? When it went up, it was on the run up to 20K a couple of years ago. And I was like, man, that was silly because it was sitting at 3K forever. But I just don't I've held it because I didn't, you know, my holdings weren't very big. but could I really ride it to one hundred and twenty or to two fifty? i I don't really think I could. You know, I think I'd have to get out <laughs> if I would have tripled or quadrupled my money. So, um I know we talked a lot about the actual, you know, real estate, the business, your partnership. but what do you what do you like to do outside of outside of real estate and investing? What do you do in your free time with family and friends?
0: I love to travel. so i'm I'm traveling a lot for work, but I also like to travel uh, for fun. And so most recently, I was in the virgin islands i was in tulum and some of that was was with friends also some of that was just alone traveling which i think traveling alone is is really good for you to just kind of see the world and and you know your brain kind of ticks a little differently when you're in new new places like that and everything is a stimulus so um i definitely like to travel uh like to uh, exercise play golf play piano so Uh, you know, COVID and, and work has gotten in the way of of quite a few of those things, which really is, uh, is, is beating me up. But yeah, that's, that's the, that's the outside of work stuff.
1: Renaissance man. He got the piano, all sorts of stuff. And then, so what, what offers you the most fulfillment in
0: life? Hmm. I think, I think a couple things. Uh, one thing is I've seen it as a recurring theme in my life as, as being a, a teacher or or a coach of some capacity. So, you know, I was a math tutor, then a piano teacher, football coach, kind of just always wanted to step into that sort of role. And, you know, very selfishly, teaching is the absolute best way to learn. So so that's good. But yeah, I think, you know, maybe not, maybe not like in my eyes, the the ideal thing, like, oh gosh, I wish there was something else that really made me feel fulfilled. Uh, but yeah, I think that that is it when I look at myself. Uh, and then I think the other thing too is like, think, I wish I had the opportunity more to, to think strategically and to, to kind of brainstorm and plan and really kind of, uh, you know, put puzzles together that, that really gets me excited. And, you know, unfortunately I can't spend all my time doing that. There's actually time where it's like, you actually have to do the work, but I love thinking about strategy and whatnot.
1: No, that's awesome. And I mean, you know a lot of the things you've brought up around the, the podcast, the book, the modeling, the underwriting tools that you've put together, and your articles. I would I would definitely recommend any of the audience go and check out. I know you had a great article the other day around cost basis and re- and return on cost. You know for I just I think you know un- unlevered. So you know how you compare deals side by side so that you can kind of take debt out of it. So in case you know debt changes for whatever there's fluctuations and stuff. So anyways, I would definitely recommend any in the audience to go check out his, his website and any blog posts and stuff. He's got some great stuff out there. So, um, well, what's the best way the
0: audience can get a hold of you, Rob? So you can learn more about Lone Star myself. You can get in touch at lscre.com. Uh, on our website, there's a, a new investor form. If you want to get in touch, if you want to download our underwriting model for free, uh, you'll be able to find that on the homepage as well. And, uh, I'll see you there.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate the time.
0: Yeah. Likewise. Thanks for having me.
1: Until next time, live fulfilled. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.